Hello, Los Angeles arts community and beyond. I'm Carolina Sique, and this is the Artbreak Podcast. It's been five months and six days since the murder of George Floyd. Seven months and 16 days since the murder of Breonna Taylor. Eight months and six days since the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And most recently, three days since the murder of Walter Wallace Jr. at the hands of police in Philadelphia. These are four of countless others this year. Dijon Kizzy, Michael Anthony Harris, Hassani Best, Anthony McLean, Dominique Antoine Anderson, Renard Antonio Daniels, and Tina Marie Davis, to name a few. Not to mention the dozens of black trans folks killed this year, like Tony McDade, Monica Diamond, Nina Pop, Raya Milton, Dominique Remy Fells, Lexi, Brayla Stone, Mercy Mack, Shockey Peters, Bree Black, and Mia Green. Check on your black friends. We're tired. This year has been a lot, to say the least. As we heard in our previous series about racism in the theater, 2020 has also been a big year for black artists. On top of witnessing the repeated violence against black bodies, black theater artists have been called upon to expose racism in theatrical practice, as well as pave the way for anti-racism in the theater world. Although this is a much needed change within the arts community, it doesn't come without an emotional toll. As my friend and colleague, Celia Mandela Rivera, the Associate Artistic Director at Skylight Theatre Company said in a recent panel about anti-racist work in the theatre, and I'm definitely paraphrasing this, Coming into this business, I didn't ask to lead an anti-racist theatre program. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to make art. But the theatre community simply didn't have these resources for people of colour, so what else was I supposed to do? Though the hype has subsided on social media, the conversation is still not over. Back in August, our Artistic Associate for Social Justice, Karni Mekatichian, hosted a panel called Keeping the Momentum about how theatrical institutions can still engage with anti-racist practices. We at ISC felt that the panel discussion was so important, we're bringing it onto this podcast as a reminder that this important work is still happening and cannot happen without continued conversation. Panelists include amazing Los Angeles-based Black artists such as Sophina Brown, award-winning theatrical producer and founder of Support Black Theater, Aisha Kabia, actress and ISC ensemble member, Bruce Lemon Jr., actor, writer, director, producer, artistic director of Watts Village Theater Company and associate artistic director of the Cornerstone Theater Company, and other familiar voices on this podcast, Dominic Taylor, writer, director, scholar, and interim chair of the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, and Sabra Williams, ISC ensemble member, co-founder of Creative Acts, and the Actors Gang Prison Project, and 2016 champion of change under President Obama. Take a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keeping the Momentum, Theater's Role in Social Justice. My name is Karen Rosemecker Tichon. I am Independent Shakespeare Company's Artistic Associate for Social Justice. In the midst of this current movement to dismantle systemic white supremacy, some ask the question, what is theater's role in social justice? Does everything have to be political? 
Can't you just sing and dance so we can escape for a few hours? Well, the answer to that question is theater always has been and always will be political. From the ancient art of Japanese no theater to Shakespeare's histories to Brecht's aesthetic to Cabaret's indictment of fascism to Augusto Bowles theater of the oppressed to Entizaki Shange's intersectional centering of black women and for colored girls. Theater has and always will create empathy and spark conversations and activism that brings about change. So how do we as theater artists respond to this current moment? Well, to answer that question, please welcome our panelists. Sophina Brown is an award-winning theatrical producer and founder of the Support Black Theater organization. She is also an actress with series regular credits on Shark, Numbers, and currently on Lena Waithe's series, Twenties. Aisha Kabia has been part of the ISC family since our early days in Barnsdall Park. In her eight seasons with ISC, she has played Lady Capulet in Romeo and Juliet, Thaisa in Pericles, both Titania and Helena in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Queen Elizabeth in Richard III, just to name a few. She has also performed at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in addition to her numerous television and commercial credits. Bruce Lemon Jr. is an actor, writer, director, and producer. He is the current artistic director of the Watts Village Theater Company and associate artistic director of the Cornerstone Theater Company. He is also a company member of the Illyrian Players and Collaborative Artists Block. Dominic Taylor is no stranger to ISC, having been featured in our latest Art Break podcast, and he gave a brilliant lecture to accompany ISC's iambic lab reading of Bright Swords earlier this year. He is a writer, director, and scholar of African American theater and serves as the interim chair of the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. Sabra Williams has graced the ISC stage as the Baud and Dionysa in Pericles, Mariah in Twelfth Night, and Tamara in Titus Andronicus. She is the co-founder of Creative Acts, a social justice organization that uses the arts as a tool for transformation. She is also co-founder of the Actors Gang Prison Project and was named a Champion of Change by President Obama in 2016. Hello, everybody. I'm bringing in all of our panelists. Welcome. Thank you all so much for joining us. I just want to acknowledge that we are all gathering here together today on Kongva land. We need to always make sure that we acknowledge that. So we are going to get started with our discussion. Again, feel free to ask any questions that you have in the chat. We will have a question and answer section at the end of the evening. So to start us off, would someone like to start by speaking about theater as advocacy through a historical lens? Um, hi, um, thanks for inviting me. Welcome everybody. I, I can start with that. Um, 
one of the challenges about theater as a place of advocacy is theater always engages in social change. The question that we ask ourselves is, is theater um, a change for the positive or a change for the negative? But it always engages in social change. And theater in the Americas um, has always been part of a social justice piece in so many ways. And social justice, I'm, I'm sorry, let me be clear. African-American theater. Now, I am going to frame African-American theater with the capital the T theater that we represent. So I'm not going to talk about ritual. I'm not going to talk about spiritual understanding. I'm not talking about the myriad of ways in which from 1619 going forward, we have engaged Black people, African-based people in modes of resistance. So I'm going to remove ritual and spiritual constructions, and I'm actually going to start with theater. So when I'm, when I'm looking at theater in the Americas, you know, America started in 1789 and the first um, African-American theater company, the what was called in the newspapers, the African Grove Theater Company, although James Hewlett and William Alexander Brown called their theater the American Company, was a really interesting group of um, African-American men and women who performed in the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And one of their acts of resistance, I mentioned this, is they performed in 1821 a play called King Shotaway. And King Shotaway was a play that dealt with the revolution of Saint-Domingue, the Haitian Revolution directly. And the Haitian Revolution just ended in 18, I'm sorry, in 1714. Forgive me. In 1814, the Haitian Revolution ended. 1791 to 1814. So it ended seven years prior to this production. So the African Grove Theater or the American Grove Theater was putting on a show about the Haitian Revolution in a land in which slavery was still the law of the land. Um, they're really significant because 1821, we were still as a nation trying to figure out what we were, how we were um, engaging in a nation that was built primarily on anti-Blackness as, as a way of understanding um, being an American. And so the African Grove Theater was really significant, as was William Wells Brown's work, different William Brown. 1847, he had a play called The Escape or A Leap for Freedom. And inside that play, what he was trying to do in terms of a resistance mode was he was actually taking um, the stories that we had and were trying to reposition them. And one of the great things that I think he did in that work was he took popular minstrel songs of the day and tried to remake them into freedom songs. Um, in the third act, there's a song called Dandy Jim in which he took a popular song, Dandy Jim of Caroline, and made it a revolutionary song. Instead of um, um, being the happy slave in the song, it was about being revolutionary in the song, which was kind of stunning. And that was um, 1857 is when he did that. Then, of course, you've got all the other kind of modes of performance that existed. But I'm going to mention um, two movements uh, that predate the Black Lives Matter movement today, which um, so William Wells Brown and the African Grove Theater are individuals, they're precursors, as were um, Maria Stewart, the journalist who predated uh, Ida B. Wells in terms of um, dealing with African, African-American resistance modes. But um, the movements that I want to mention are the Harlem Renaissance and the Black Arts Movement. So the Harlem Renaissance, um, the movement at the beginning of the 20th century that uh, is most attributable to Elaine Locke and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's book, which was then titled The New Negro, in which the phrase for us, by us, about us, and near us 
as the criteria for Negro art became a, a rallying cry. I mean, Du Bois really thought, and it's written in uh, The New Negro, which was edited by Elaine Locke, that the function of art is to use beauty to set the world right. So the Harlem Renaissance was an interesting mechanism of performance that was really predicated on uplifting blackness, but also taking the, 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 the shackles or the, the, the mantle of white supremacy or anti-blackness and removing them. It was also very significant because they were trying to come up with new forms. I don't want to be remiss, although I am talking about theater, about two other moments that were happening at the beginning of the 20th century. One was this major push in education in the South, um, in the, which was embodied by Booker T. Washington, which is a controversial being. The Tuskegee Institute is not a controversial institution, but he's a controversial being. But one of the reasons why I mention him when we're talking about performance or theater, um, the so-called Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, was written for Du Bois by James Weldon Johnson as, uh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Booker T. Washington, Lift Every Voice and Sin, was written for Booker T. Washington as he was to make a presentation at a Florida all-boys school. Booker T. Washington in the South and Du Bois in the North were these like polar challenging spaces. And, and one was, um, people look at them differently, but the only reason why I mention them is both of them used theater in their particular context, theater makings, um, to try to um, gain or regain their position. So I think that Du Bois and Booker T. Washington um, were challenging individuals at the beginning of the 20th century. The Harlem Renaissance or the Negro, the new Negro movement of the 1920s was unbelievably significant and is a precursor to all of the stuff that we're doing today. Um, there is a third person who I should probably mention, the Black Nationalists of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, although they didn't do theater, that's Marcus Garvey. And if you know anything about Marcus Garvey and the UNIA, their entire existence was pageantry. Pageantry to combat what they saw was a problem and they were uh, black nationalists. So I wanna make this clear historically. At the beginning of the 20th century, we had three different theatrical modes that were operating. One was operating with the engagement of the institutions that we had, which one could say, this is Du Bois and Elaine Locke. This is theater by us, for us, about us, and near us. Booker T. Washington was using educational theater in the South primarily, um, a controversial being, but he still wanted to use theater performance, performance making as a way for um, people to be uplifted. And Marcus Garvey with the Black Nationalists or UNIA um, engaged in a significantly different way of theatrical presentation, which is theatrical presentation in everyday life. Okay, now I'm gonna jump ahead 50 years to the 1960s and the Black Arts Movement. In the Black Arts Movement, probably um, people know of Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, Ed Bullens, and um, Ntozake Shange, who, although she's like the, the, the granddaughter of this movement. Inside that space, it was really significant to, as um, Larry Neal said, um, we wanna kill Dick and Jane. And he was talking about Dick and Jane in these um, archetypal Western stories that existed where black people were often removed. And so the push inside the black arts movement was really to find new forms and to really engage in theater in a, in a robust way. The black arts movement was the sister or brother movement of the black power movement. And so 
it was all over the country. Ed Bullens was in San Francisco. Um, Sonia Sanchez uh, is in Philadelphia. We had um, Haki Matabuti in Chicago. We had Amiri Baraka in New York. We had people in DC. There's a variety of people who are moving this work throughout the nation. But the black arts movement was so significant in the 1960s because it is the movement that made Antezaki Shange write for Colored Girls. Uh, August Wilson credits it as a major source. Um, Charles Fuller, there's so many writers, including Aisha Rahman, PJ Gibson, a bunch of writers who helped shape what we call contemporary theater today. So if, if you wanted to hold with pillars that are 50 years apart, the Harlem Renaissance in the 1910s, 1920s, the Black Arts Movement in the 1960s, and now we're in a new, a new moment in which social justice is central to our theatrical practice. But that kind of gives a, a historical pillar space for people to go forward and think of it. Um, yeah, that's it for now. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Dominic. Um, does anybody want to add to that discussion before we move on to our next question? No? All right. So now that we've touched on theater for social change through a more historical lens, is there someone who would like to speak to examples of theater as advocacy for social justice and activism in our current moment? Is that me? <laughs> I can speak to it. <laughs> um, yes. Hi. Um, so. <clears throat> I think I look at theatre through the eyes of a immigrant European woman of colour who's lived in this country a long time but was brought up in a country where we actually had the arts in the core of the school day. So I think for me, not just theatre but the arts in general, I've learned everything about the power of the arts to make change in prison. And I say that because I've been working, <clears throat> excuse me, inside prisons for about 15 years and um, started with a theater program. And I guess that what I've been educated to understand is first of all, equity and access are like super important. And, you know, just listening to, um, what was just said, the function, the quote, the function of art is to use beauty to set the world right. Prison is strategically made as ugly and soul crushing as possible. And so what I've seen is when you have the arts in that space, everything can be transformed. And so what I, I feel quite strongly about this country is that we view the arts, theatre, all of the arts and artists as being we view the arts as for artists or for entertainment. And what we don't understand is the essential nature of the arts for being fully human, something that indigenous or, um, you know, indigenous cultures deeply understand. And, you know, they consider artists shamans and the arts medicine. And so for me, what I've understood is the urgency of having access to the arts, not to become artists. None of the thousands of people that I've taught have become artists. They're way too smart and they don't like unemployment. Um, but what they do is they use the tools that the arts can bring, which I could talk more about 
later what tools the arts bring and what benefits the outcomes of arts programs are for impact of society uh, cultures um, but they use those in their lives to make different emotional choices to be work ready to you know heal the trauma of being incarcerated um, and so I guess it's given me a new focus on what it is I do and I think especially in Los Angeles where you know the industry in Los Angeles is so much predicated on how you look and how much you're working what kind of jobs you're working on are you on a film or on tv but we've lost a lot of you know the um, essential nature of the arts to make social change and we lose a lot when we lose that and so I, um, I guess what I would say is at this time right now of radical reimagining, what I'm seeing a lot is a desperate clinging on to the kind of corporate white male version of theater, which is what's so deeply embedded in our culture right now, and trying to make it what I call theater light, you know, to try to push aside the real deep work that we do as theater artists that you know the self-reflection that this work can give us and just to make it as closely aligned to what it's always or what we've seen it as being in this country so um we have a chance right now to really radically reimagine and that means doing the inside work and so what we do in my organization creative acts is use the arts in the process of making that change as a tool to make change. And of course, not surprisingly, it's a very effective and safe space to make that internal change. Um, and I can talk more about that later, but there's a lot of people to speak. <laughs> Would anyone wanna add to that discussion? before we move on to our next question? You know, I think, uh, I think um, they, it's, it's, it's obviously all, all well, I think, I feel like it's obvious, or it's been obvious to many of us how, 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 um, how this is all connected. And while we're doing this, um, how, how many of us are, have been using uh, the arts and, and theater for social change, a lot of the uh, issue, a problem has been uh, our ability to do that in a, in a, in a safe working environment, uh, uh, a healthy working environment, a nurturing working environment um, that uh, that isn't um, structured around working you to death uh, and disrespecting you or disregarding you or uh, or or neglecting to uh, like give adequate weight to your stories and your experiences, you know. Um, and it's it's always been a tool that we that we've used, and the, but the systems in which we work within them has always. Uh, has always been bad for us because it's all built with white supremacy in the in the very fabric of these or, of our organizations and our working practices uh, and all that. Um, so, you know, there's got to be a way that we can uh, sustain ourselves while we also, uh, you know, do that work because it is so important because art is so transformative. Um, and there's there's so many skills that you that you get from uh, studying and practicing uh, theater. Uh, whether you want to be an artist or not, as as, as I told about the you know the thousands of people that she's as she's trained that have used the other all the skills that you that you pick up just uh, as like as you're crafting just the art of storytelling, and 
you know, we're all storytellers and that's how we communicate naturally. That's how we say what we want. That's how we demand what we want. Um, yeah, I can, I can keep talking about this, but let's, let's have a conversation. Yeah, I think that I would just add to that really quickly as someone who has worked as an educator with youth and at-risk youth, like there's no way to express how transformative art can be. And we all know that. And the frustrating thing that can happen in these organizations is sometimes it becomes so focused on the final product because we have to get funding, we have to get donors. So it's like, what's, what can we do? How can we have the kids ready so they can see what they're doing and what they learn? And then sometimes we're so caught up in trying to get the funding that the actual work and the actual transformation can get lost, which speaks to what happens in this capitalist system. Does anybody else wanna to add to that discussion? I just wanted to add to what Bruce said, because he was talking about self-care and working mm -hmm. in prison for 15 years, you know, people always ask, well, aren't you depressed at the end of the day? Or, you know, how do you stay sane or how do you not take on the trauma? And I realized eventually that the reason that there's so much joy in the room is because we're working with partners. We're not like the professor that comes in with all the information and we fill them up with information. So we're actually creating a different culture. And I think that's what a practice can do. So we're doing the work internally at the same time that we're asking other people to do the work. And to me, that is the essential point of this revolution that's happening right now. If we don't do our internal work as well, in the future, we're going to become the oppressors. So we have to... Thanks for showing that photo. <laughs> we have to, perfect timing. I, and that one too, that's for the self-care I'm doing there. Totally, totally. <laughs> we have to do the work as well as asking other people to do the work, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh my God, stop, Karen. -y. <laughs> you know I had to do it. I told you I would. All right, awesome. Yeah, working for impact, you know, not just... Not just uh, you know for the for the sake of 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 of, of creation and the sake of doing the art, like you're working for impact, and it's um, it it's feeding. I think it for, personally for me, I I, I think w working for impact and like even when you're like toiling and spending doing long hours and all that stuff, but when it's for something more than just to uh, distract people for a good two hours, um, like it just it fills it fills me up it fills me better but it is draining it's very draining you know sometimes i just want to do something that's happy you know um but uh but we know this is a powerful tool to create change we know we know this is a powerful tool to change minds uh and 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 to heal and to help people heal um and you know it's so it's just it's it's just too valuable of a tool uh to uh to burn out the people that are trying to do it at the same time um while we're navigating other other systems, while we're navigating all the system of, of oppression, while we're also working to dismantle them, while we're also working to uh, to help ourselves through them, uh, all with the same tool. Yeah, you know, this is one other thing that I think the other challenge about it is placing it on a timeline. I mean, you mentioned this, Karini, when you're talking about the product. I think the thing about, and I'm sure everybody's had this experience, when you have 
the changing of mind might not happen at the end of the six weeks or the 10 weeks or whatever time you're there with them. Do you know what I'm saying? It could be two years later. It could be a year later when somebody has a realization or when you have the realization. So I think that one of the things about dismantling a mindset or changing people's spirits inside, outside, it, it, putting it on a timeline to say, I, you know, this could happen right now. I, you know, when I worked at Penumbra, it used to, Penumbra is an African-American theater in Minnesota. It used to always make me chuckle when our education department would get some grant and then we'd have to have some outcome that's going to be 10 weeks later. And I'm like, you can't turn around this in 10 weeks. This is going to happen in two years or three years. But the fact that we, we, we're in this capitalist, it's kind of like the assembly line correction of race or racism in some way. Like, boom, you, you did it. You, you did the show. They wrote the thing, blah, blah, blah. We should have all problems solved. It's like it doesn't work that way. And I think that, that and, it, and it can be frustrating for the makers of it. I mean, the makers, the teachers, the sharers of, of this experience. But I always tell the people that I work with, it's like, don't put yourself on the timeline. The timeline is long. The journey is long. We just got to take our time and just, you know, it's chopping wood every day. We take little pieces, just little pieces all the time. That's it. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Amen to that. Mm. All right. So moving on to our next question. So we've all seen the We See White American Theater letter that was written by a bunch of BIPOC artists speaking to this moment and a lot of systemic racism within the theater community. So would anyone like to speak to the current shift that we are seeing in our theater community right now, at large, in Los Angeles, all of it? I think it's, it's kind of happening in a bunch of different places. It could be happening internally uh, within you, it could be happening within your organization, and it's definitely happening uh, across the nation. I think it totally scared the, the, the crap out of a lot of people, uh, first of all, um, a, lot of, a lot of companies, a lot of old companies. Uh, uh, for sure, because uh, it feels like being called in the carpet, um, and it is. It very much is, you know. But these aren't uh, like the when the when the initial letter hit, um, and but then it's followed up with all these stories. If you follow the Instagram page, you see all these stories, all these accounts, and these are stories that we've heard before. I know I've heard them before. You know, I, I you know, these are these are stories of uh, of an unsafe work environment and unsafe business practices and like a, 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 like an unhealthy environment for us to create in uh, and exist in. Um, so then, then the then the the demands finally came uh, have have uh, have hit, and you know people are reacting in various different ways. Some companies are going through and trying to see where they where they align and where they need to do the work. Like we are at Cornerstone Theater Company, we're like going through this document and and having these internal conversations and talking about the work and talking about how we do the work as a company and as individual artists. You know, um, others are uh, running from it or not responding, and then there are others who are also doing this timeline. Trying to put yourself on a timeline for when you're going to solve racism, when you're going to become mm -hmm. a, a white supremacy culture, but it's not going to happen. There's no, there, there's no, there's, we're not going to have a ceremony in six weeks and say, ah, cool, you did, you did, you had, a, you had a session, you, you, you cured it, you know, you, 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 you attack the problem in all the proper ways. Like, that's not going to happen. This is a long game, uh, and um, it's going to take a lot of, you know, picking those bags up every single day, and doing that work every single day. You know, you don't have to try to be a racist in America or, 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 or interact or like in, to weaponize racism in America. Like it, racism in white supremacy culture is the air we breathe here. You know, it's in every single social system. It's in every single thing that we use in our regular basis from education to transportation uh, to nonprofits and all that. It all It's all built under a better white supremacy culture. So doing that work to, uh, to begin the process of dismantling or to uh, uh, just 
make a full account of your in, own internalized racism and 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 the things that you need to do. It's just going to take time and repetition, uh, and there is no there is no timeline where you're going to hit that button and say, "Boom, we are an anti-racist organization," or "We are anti-racist filled," you know, or, or like that. That's that's not that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is people are going to say we are doing the work. Uh, and eventually after people can keep saying they're doing the work, they'll actually start doing the work and then we might start seeing results. Um, but it's going to take a lot of repetition and a lot of doing that work and a lot of having these conversations, these very difficult conversations um, that shouldn't just be happening at your theater. They should be happening at your house. They should be happening, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like holidays are coming up, you know, it's going to be, somewhere, right. it's going to be tight for a lot of people, you know, but you're going to have to have those conversations. Uh, that's the only way it's going to we're going to move forward uh, is if you if you normalize having having those conversations and doing that work every single day. Yes, exactly. And when it comes specifically to like theater companies, it's what work are you doing? Did you just post an image of Black Lives Matter and like a little square? Is that the extent of the work you're doing? Are you looking at your entire season? Are you looking at the artists you're employing, are you looking at your board? What is the work that you're doing? Are you trying to, if you're having people who are speaking and doing work, BIPOC individuals, Black individuals, are you paying them for their labor? Right. These are the questions that we need to be asking. Somebody- we need to be asking before we say yes to, to work. Yes, with yes exactly. Yeah. And who would, anyone else? Yes, Sophie? No, I was just going to say, um, you know, to piggyback on what Bruce was saying, there are a lot of mainstream theaters and mainstream companies that are um, kind of scrambling and and really taking um, internal looks to course correct. And like you said, you know, dismantle certain practices and systems that they um, have uh, been enabling through their institution. And I just have to say that I think what's of even greater import, because we know that there are going to be some institutions that it's purely optics, that they have no interest mm-hmm. um, in really, like Bruce said, doing the work in a timely way. But I think that what's of greater import in questioning or even defending uh, intention is examining impact. And I think one of the ways that these companies and these theaters um, something that really needs to be on the table when they're in certain conversations and in, in certain dialogue, what really needs to be on the table is saying, okay, if we do this, is it so that ultimately it benefits us in the long run? What could we conversely be doing that would benefit those BIPOC institutions, companies, theaters that have been in the trenches Mm-hmm. Decade after decade after decade. I think that's the question because so often these um, entities want to leapfrog over minority entities to kind of plant mm-hmm. their flag on the top of the mountain and say, we solved it. Look at what we did over here. But there's no real uh, championing or rallying around the efforts of these minority um, entities themselves, if that makes any sense. Because yeah. I think at the end of the day, what needs to be um, at the table more so than the buzz phrase of diversity, inclusion, and equity, um, we really need to start talking about autonomy. Mm. Autonomy mm-hmm. for BIPOC 
entities and BIPOC institutions, because I think what ends up happening a lot of the time is there's all this internal uh, reform happening and uh, we lose track, we lose sight of, and I'm, I'll speak from the place of me as an African-American woman um, being the founder of Support Black Theater, which in and of itself is a very intentional statement. Um, I will just say we lose sight of Black entities and Black theaters. Um, yes. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I think that, um, I think that we just have to be very mindful um, collectively. All of us have to be very mindful not to leapfrog over people who have been doing the work for, for year after year after year after year. Yes. yes. Amen to that. Does anybody else want to speak on this before we move on? I mean, there's a question of how that happens. Uh, yeah. you know, how like are these are 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 different entities going to uh, stop applying for uh, for for funding so they can go into a community and 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 do that work or like stop trying to be the middle person that uh, takes the grant and then forms a partnership with with uh, the, the with, with the smaller community led organization like mm. are they going to help facilitate that flow and redirect it say you know, yes, we could, but you know, it really should go here. Like, how is that? How is that going to happen? Like, this is going to take a lot yeah. of people. Uh, uh, it's going to be um, people stepping down from positions. Uh, it's def definitely leaders uh, that that haven't been uh, paying attention or, or haven't noticed that there was a, a problem within this within within the the theater or within any of these systems. Uh, like, if you just noticed the beginning of the pandemic uh, that, uh, mm -hmm. that racism was a problem. Like, maybe maybe you aren't the person that should be in the driver's seat of anything like right not saying you don't got no skills but like you shouldn't be leading <laughs> definitely um like so how's it gonna happen who's gonna give up who's gonna give up that slot you know but the, but the, uh, no i'm sorry uh, who somebody was talking before me i was oh it was me but go ahead no no worries at all no, I was just going to piggyback on what Sophina had just said. I mean, I think the resource allocation piece is gigantic. Like, I don't know what Ebony Rep's budget is or um, Roby's budget is in L.A. I know in Minnesota, when I was associate artistic director at Penumbra, I would tell people our budget was approaching $3 million. And we were big for an African-American theater. Mm -hmm. The Guthrie's budget was $36, 38000000 million. I mean, you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's and we were big in terms of a bunch of small theaters. But as you know, $36 million is so much different. We weren't even cracking three. And so what we, what, and this goes to the point about leapfrogging people, our infrastructure was so different. Our education department was so small and we're trying to compete for grants on the same level. I got one person writing a grant for a new play thing. They got eight people writing the same grant. You just got, I mean, it's just a resource allocation piece. And the question is, you know, who's going to shift that? How are those institutions going to start sharing because I do think the notion of leap leaping these organizations that have been in the trenches you know uh St. Louis Black Rep with Ron Himes he's been there for 40 years I mean there's so many places that I've that I've been and that I've worked and I've dealt with African Continuum in DC these theaters that have been existing and now in DC African Continuum I have no idea what their budget is 
but you can't compare it to arena stage. You can't, you can't compare it. Yeah. It's, like, it's like my wallet and Bill Gates's wallet. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like it's <laughs> oranges. So I think that's one of the things, and this is a great point. I mean, I don't know when that changes, when the institutional resource allocation shifts, and I don't, I don't know how that's going to change. Yeah. I mean, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and one of the things that I, I'll just say, for example, one of the things that I truly believe should happen is that, for example, there are gatekeepers, right? Mm -hmm. we, we all know this. There are gatekeepers, and there are certain uh, gatekeepers that don't necessarily want to admit that that is their role and their function. And I think that even though they claim to be allies and, and stand in solidarity, um, they have to really look at the ways in which they are continuing to operate as enablers. And I will just say, I hope this doesn't get me into too much trouble, but I'm gonna tell the truth and shame the devil. Um, something like rights houses. Mm -hmm. We need as black curators yes. to be able to tell our stories first. Yes. First. And yes. I think that one of the things that mainstream institutions can do is just take a back seat. And we're not saying don't produce the work, but we're saying allow us to do so first. If it can't happen, it can't happen. But at least you allow a different type of trajectory mm -hmm. that can have long-term change um, as a byproduct. You know what I'm saying? Because I yeah. know, for example, and I'm just throwing this, this is just, I'm, I'm literally just picking a play and throwing it out there. This has nothing to do with anything. But um, for example, if Ebony Rep wants to do pipeline, you know, but it's being held by say CTG or the Geffner, whatever, there's a problem with that. There's a yeah. problem with that, that we don't have access to our playwrights. And so it's not saying that the CTG or the Geffens or the Pasadena Playhouses of the world can't produce pipeline. Ebony Rep and CTG have very different audiences. CTG for the most part is sustained by a majority white subscription base. That's not the same mm -hmm. audience as Ebony Rep. And so sometimes I think I, I would love to see some mainstream theaters kind of throw out um, change in that in that way because it is really championing, like I said, and 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 allowing the autonomy of the Roby, of Ebony Rep, of Waco, you know, of the a BRC, a BCC, a lower depth. It's saying, you know what, you tell your stories first, and then we'll take them and we'll and we'll tell it, you know, to our audience. But I think that we have to look at things from all different angles. Yes. I think that's super important. And I guess what I would add to that is that these things won't change when the people who have power are the same people. And the front is that we'll bring in a whole lot more Black people and buy mm -hmm. people into the cast, you know, in, in the next season. We'll do some plays by people of color and, you know, we'll get some more staff in that, you know, are BIPOC. That's what I'm really concerned about because that's what I'm seeing a lot. But the power is the board. Why? Yes. The board are still all or mainly white people and the senior staff are mainly or all white people. 
the only thinking that's going on is based in that way of thinking, right? So if the board, the board decide what the season is, right? They, they have the yay or nay for the season. So if the board is not reflective mm -hmm. of, you know, our communities, it's never going to change, right? All that will happen is that um, they will throw us some crumbs and say, black theater companies, you go over here with this bit of money. Yes, we're gonna give you more money. We might give you rights, but you're never going to be able to come over here. Right, you always have to stay over there, and um, I think that that what that does is just entrenches the racism that's there because now they have a good because they can now say, oh look, we have you know fifteen BIPOC people in the company instead of two, and I know that because I see it in places that I've worked. I've seen it happening. And that worries me more than anything, because then the, the the white supremacist structure just gets entrenched, because you don't see it, you can't see it as much. It's not blatant. And then you know the out the other end of this is I do a lot of grant writing. There's so every system has to change right now in this country. Every system, as Bruce I think said, is based on white supremacy. In the philanthropy world, their boards are nearly all white. The people mm -hmm. who manage the money are nearly all white. So, you know, even like the the way that they look at the grants that are coming in are not the same as if we had boards that were much more mixed. And the decisions that they make are coming from one way, established way of thinking. And so even if they look at a grant from a company that they can say, oh, this was written this isn't a well-written grant, it's done carelessly. But this one here is well-written, which is something that we hear called merit. What is merit, you know, that this grant is better written. But like we said, you know, they have professional grant writers. Yeah. Here, they can't afford a professional grant writer. And yes. so time after time, they keep getting kicked out because mm -hmm. rather than philanthropy saying, oh, this grant isn't as well-written, let me see if I can reach out to this organization and offer them grant writing skills. And classes they don't do that it just goes in the garbage so that whole system has to change and where the power lies yes yeah. exactly exactly and that's how we end up with companies where their diversity for their whole season is just all shoehorned into one august wilson play and then the other problematic extreme of some of those companies is then they end up taking the rights for the entire cycle of August Wilson plays from black theater artists. So take that personally if you want to. All right, now we're gonna move on to our next topic. So would um, someone like to speak to their experiences being a black theater artist mm -hmm. and the importance of representation and accessibility. Uh, I guess I will take that. Um, oh man, um, God, my brain is racing right now. You guys have all brought up such amazing um, kind of topics and viewpoints that I'm now um, gonna stay focused on this one. Um, uh, I started my uh, my journey as a theater artist in. Uh, God, I'm not going to date myself. I was 23. Um, <laughs> and um, I started working at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. It was my first professional job out of undergrad um, at UC Santa Barbara. And um, 
Um, God, uh, I guess in the, uh, I, I wanted to go and work there because I wanted to work. And the, uh, the artistic director at the time had come to our school and given a talk. And I was like, well, it sounds like people of color may have a space there. So I guess that's probably where I should go because um, I, I had a hard time seeing where else I was going to fit in at the time, what, 17 years ago? The, it, felt, it feels like the landscape was so, so different. Um, and uh, I took uh, that job after I graduated without ever having visited Ashland, Oregon. Um, and uh, it was a bit of a shock. It was a bit of a shock uh, to arrive in this little mountain town and realize that I was going to uh, be there for all this time. But I also understood the importance of um, the experience of being one of these few artists of color who, um, who who had crossed this kind of threshold felt like it was still something that was difficult to do um and it i had also been kind of uh, pushed on by somebody who told me that black people didn't do shakespeare and i was like oh really well let's see i'm gonna show you so um i i understood that there was um there was value to me being in kind of this all white space. Um, for the most part, the, the audiences are um, majority white. And um, I don't know, I just felt I felt really compelled and driven to to show um, black life and experience through the, these older Shakespeare plays. And then they produce, you know, the, the more contemporary shows as a part of their uh, 11 play cycle as well. Um, and during my second year I, there, I was playing um, two leading roles in A Raisin in the Sun and Comedy of Errors, and I was still a little non-acuity actor. And um, it was incredibly empowering to, uh, to be in that space and to um, feel my voice heard, and especially in A Raisin in the Sun. Um, I could have done, I could still be doing that play. I love that play with all my heart and soul. Lorraine Hansberry like, wrote a beautiful, perfect play. Um, and it was just never lost on me, uh, the importance of that. And especially since there were other artists of color that I was meeting that were um, from Penumbra and from places that I had never, I had never heard of at that point um, as I was uh, such a young theater artist. Um, and I got to interact with them and learn from them and understand how to maneuver through the theater world as an, act, an actor of color, what that would mean and how to um, play the game, uh, I guess. Because at the, I mean, it's corporate theater when you're working at a theater that's producing 11 shows over an 11 month time span. Um, it, was, it was corporate theater and I, after my, season of doing a comedy bears and, and a raisin in the sun that was 200 performances of these two shows. And, um, I asked to be made equity 
said, there's nothing really in the next upcoming season that I want to do. I think I just had the, the bravado of youth at that point. I was like, make me equity or I'm leaving. And um, I guess I see it through a different lens now as, as an adult. Um, I understood my value and maybe it was just coming off of playing, um, really being in the company of um, a group of black actors who were performing at their highest level and who kind of instilled that in me as well. And it was like, after that, I knew my value. I knew my worth. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to go find a different non-equity person. You're, you're released. Um, and I was like, all right, fine. Um, moving on. Uh, and then they came back to me a couple of weeks before the season ended and said, Hey, we've, we've searched the whole country and we can't find anyone. We'll we'll make you equity if you will stay and play these roles. And, and I did, and that was an incredibly powerful moment, um, in my life and a kind of a turning point as an actor, just, um, if it hadn't been for that group of people, um, these incredibly skilled artists who'd, I mean, in their forties and fifties and sixties who are, you know, had come through so much more than I will ever truly understand. Um, they gave me that. Um, and I was able to stay throughout the next season and, and do that. But it was just a lesson that has, that has um, carried me through um, and what I really believe has given me the longevity to kind of um, stick through with this. Uh, I, after, after being there, I, I needed to leave a little one mile town in Ashland because I was 25 or 26 at the time and came to LA and ended up um, one of my professors from college uh, who is also a beautiful African-American actor sent me in the direction of um, the independent Shakespeare company who was just like a little baby company at the time. And I was like, you know what? I, I know that um, I'm just going to keep going with this Shakespeare thing. It's my niche. Um, mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I'm not having this barrier that I did in film and TV. Like I could be an ingenue in Shakespeare. I could be accepted for whatever reason. And I think it was also that I just got incredible, I'm gonna like knock on wood. So there are other companies in town who did not respond to me at all in any way. Um, told me I was barely black enough to be in a, in a show that they wanted to cast me in. They're like, we love you for this role, but you're just kind of barely black enough. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, so uh, I feel like I've been incredibly blessed to um, always kind of collide with incredible artists of color and opportunities to um, be in ingenue and leading lady roles that uh, I don't think I would have had access to otherwise. I don't know that I would still be acting um, if it weren't for those um, opportunities. So I'm grateful to have found two companies, not only one, but two companies that um, gave me the opportunity or I showed up and the opportunity, we collided and, um, oh, there we are, Karen -y. She's mm -hmm. like, last mm -hmm. year. God, that was special. Just to have, mm -hmm. have Karen and I to, and then uh, our other um, 
uh, cohort Bacola and just to have the power of, again, being, it's very rare that I'm in a, in a, in a show where it's all black women and, yes. um, the power of that, I have only experienced it twice in my 17 year career, which I think is a, a damn shame. Um, and I knocking on wood that there will be far, far more experiences like that. Um, God, I feel like I'm rambling. Mm -hmm. um, no. I'll say that um, I also have a similar experience and um, I ha have in the UK and here nearly always been in white spaces as a actor of color. And that was also the first time that I've been with black women in that space. And can I say that the artistic directors, the people who founded that company, are two white people who founded Independent Shakespeare Company. Mm -hmm. So it's not impossible. It's yeah. not hard to do. <laughs> it is entirely possible to have our stages look like our community, look like where we live, look like our city. Um, and just like you, Aisha, I've also for a lot of the time I've been in this country, I have been the diversity mm. on the stage in many places. And, you know, I'm grateful for the amazing roles and places I've been able to be a part of and the, the ensembles I've been able to be a part of over the years. And I will say it is also, there is something about being the only black person or one of like two black people out of a cast of like 15 people that is super challenging even if everybody is lovely at which they are lovely supportive <laughs> you know like lovely supportive family great yeah it's still like it's wearing to be to not have anybody who understands your experience i find that hard yeah yeah, I was, you know, one of the things, although Aisha mentioned this, is I think this is really important, is mentor. I, I don't like the word mentoring yeah. or the, the, whole, the whole thing, but I know in my, because I've been doing this forever, um, my, I have had so many wonderful people who have helped me along the way. When I was in college, I was fortunate enough to have a professor named George Bass, who was, among other accidental wonderful things, Langston Hughes' secretary before Langston oh, yeah. Hughes passed away. And so, I mean, I, I just, I lucked into a lot of things. And then what, you know, I don't, I'm not gonna call on people, but like people, yeah, I will call on people. Like Ntozake Shange, to be sitting at a table with her or to talk to August Wilson or to go to Amiri Baraka's house or to even have a conversation with Izzy Monk in Minnesota, uh, yeah. Peter Macon, Marion McClinton, like people that you know yeah. who, help you. I mean, they, because I, everybody's trod this land doing this thing that I was like, oh, I'm the only person to do this. They're like, nope, I did this in 1940 or Paul Carter Harrison, you know, yeah. with the New Ensemble Company. I mean, it's just amazing to have these people in your life. And, and I, I'm always, I, I try to extend myself. If ever, if ever there's a theater artist who comes to me and he, she, or they are, you know, feeling outside or an outsider, I mean, we talk and we walk through a bunch of stuff. And a lot of times their decisions, younger artists are, are the decisions which I'm like, you have to eat. I can't tell you not to take that role in fill in the blank musical or fill in the blank play because you don't think that 
it's right or you're the only African-American person or you're the only person of color. It's like, they paying you $1,000 a week. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. make the, go get on Broadway, swing it, make it happen. It's good. And then you go do something else. I mean, it, but I yeah. think that one of the, the, the and, and then of course, you know, Aisha, you mentioned film and TV. That's a whole other animal. I'm not even going to tell y'all. I've got a bunch of stories. I've been, but, 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 sorry. Yeah, but no, no, but I do think that one of the things that we can do at this moment to always be aware of is the way in which we continue to mentor each other in all these yeah. modes. I mean, yeah. it's really yeah. important. Yeah. I, I guess I was just going to say, because like Aisha, I do, I've always done a lot of Shakespeare. Yeah. And I, I, I would love to see the, the rest of you other <laughs> than just me right now. But, um, you know, done a lot of Shakespeare and Shakespeare, thank you. Shakespeare <laughs> talks about race a lot mm-hmm. in this play. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of racism in his plays. There's a lot of illusions and just outright straight talk about race in many, many, many plays. And unless, if you're in a space that's an entirely or mainly white space with a white director and, you know, and for me, my experience has been like, you know, well, there's many that I've done, but if I think about a Shakespeare play and you, and for me, I might say, you know, oh, that's interesting that they talk about her being dark or dusky or being racist about her. And then people roll their eyes. Like, why you gotta make it all about race? And I might say, if I'm in a space where a director of color or other black people in the cast who will be like, yeah, we can talk about that. Shakespeare wants to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like just me, Sabra, in Love's Labor yeah. Lost, they're racist towards Rosaline in front of her freaking face and in front of her man. And, you know, luckily the director when I did Love's Labor wanted to talk about that, but generally people don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Shakespeare asks us to. So I'm like, it's not just, you don't only have to do August Wilson to make it black theater, you know. <laughs> Everything can be black theater. Amen. Yes, amen to that. Can I just add something? Yeah, of course conversation about representation and accessibility and how important that is. Um, I just wanted to say that um, that's why, you know, and piggyback on what you were talking about, about what is black theater. Um, I think we have to be very intentional about communicating that to the younger generations, because those formative years can really do a number on you if you don't have access to people uh, on stage that look like you or even to people um, that have been filmed that look like you. And I'll just say for, for me, um, I realized this and I'm 43, so I've, I've, I didn't have this realization. It was like, it was almost like the trauma was, <laughs> was so um, repressed. I didn't realize this until about five years ago, but the um, high school, the, the, I used to go a half day to a performing art school. So I did my academics in the morning and then in the afternoon I would just be doing theater. And it was an amazing opportunity, but um, I only saw, you know, filmed uh, performances of people that did not look like me at all. Mm-hmm. Didn't sound like me, didn't have, nothing resembled me. Um, so I was told that this, you know, that tape or that film was theater. And then when we would do yes. uh, productions, I remember we used to have these Ben Nye um, oh, lost light. Um, we have the uh, makeup. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> coming up, 
which this was back in the day, but when I was coming up, for me, we would, you know, it would be dress rehearsal or whatever, and we'd be trying to find our uh, find our foundation sticks. Mm-hmm. And I was the only one of the only black people. Um, so as the black woman, I was looking for a foundation stick labeled Tawny. I was searching through the foundation sticks for this Tawny, and I knew one existed. There was only one. Every year, I'd be like, "Where's Tawny?" And I'd be going through all the other foundation sticks of my white peers whose foundation name was Leading Lady. Wow. That wow. was the name of the color of the foundation for my white peers. And oh, I just remember wow. this maybe five years ago. And and I started thinking about these kinds of experience, what I saw, you know, because I didn't know what I didn't see. I didn't know what wasn't represented. I didn't know what I didn't have access to. I just didn't know it. So even though I was going to this uh, school and explicitly learning about theater, I was implicitly learning to desire whiteness. Mm. And for my entire college career, as I said, you know, theater in BFA uh, in theater, as I, you know, I became a professional actress pretty quickly. And I continued to operate from a place of white adjacency because of what I had been told through the representation I was seeing. Mm. You understand? And and, and what access I did or didn't have. And so it wasn't until very recently that I was able to to see it and to, to call it what it was and to start recalibrating my mentality because I realized I had been psychologically conditioned to believe a certain way about theater, of what theater actually was. You know, that theater that Dominic said, that theater with a capital T, what that Mm -hmm. actually was. And so, you know, there's been a lot of work for me because I still catch myself operating from a place of white adjacency. So I think it's of the utmost for, yes, mentorship, but it's of the utmost for us to make sure that we go out and we really lift up and amplify black voices, black entities, black theaters for the young people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They, they know that there's a place for them. And, and like Bruce always says, it doesn't always take in full immersion. It can just be awareness. Yeah. It can just shift something and turn it on a dime. You know, I mean, and I, I hate to say this because I know this gets me in trouble all the time, but the truth of the matter is the theatrical practice in America, theatrical and filmic practices, are based on anti-blackness. Yep. So what I mean by that is, the, 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 and it's not just you, I mean, it's everybody. The way in which America's theatrical practice is predicated is on this anti-blackness. And I just give two examples. I, well, the simple one is when people say Jim Crow. Jim Crow is a performance. Mm-hmm. It is a performance. Mm-hmm. It's not a law. It wasn't a, when people are like, where did the Jim Crow South? The Jim Crow, was T.D. Rice, Wheel About, Turn About, Jump, Jim Crow. It's a popular song. It was a popular mode. It was blackface minstrelsy. And what Jim Crow was, was it told America, it told all performers, that to be an American meant that you had to be able to take that that black thing off. You had to be able to take it off. Wheel About, Turn About, Jump, Jim Crow was an international hit, as we all know. And Mm -hmm. then the other piece, which I hope film schools have stopped, the first great piece of cinema that they show, the first great piece of American cinema, is Birth of a Nation. Yes. Which, is, which is the Klansman, the novel that it comes from is the Klansman in which the hero 
is a collab. I mean, I'm like, when I put my brain around it, I'm like, what? So all of our practice is predicated on building this anti-Black understanding. And then we come into it and we're like, how come everybody's, you know, pro-white? It's like, no, because the the bedrock of this thing is anti-Blackness. So we have to keep fighting it in so many ways or re trying to get them to re-understand it. And, mm. and, and it's really a challenge for me because I, I know people are like, well, no, it's not that it's not that simple. But the thing that happens in both of those films in the 19, I mean, in the film in the 20s and in the 1820s with blackface minstrelsy and Jim Crow, America's trying to define itself and mm -hmm. they're defining itself in performance. So performers make the stereotypes that we talk about. We make, you know, and I'm sure everybody's had this moment where somebody, well, I don't want to say everybody's had this moment. You go for a role and they're like, you're not right for the role. There's no way somebody could go to an accountant and say, you can't play Chekhov. But you can go to a theater, audition, you know what I'm saying? And you're like, well, you yes. can't do it because you're not rushing. I'm like, well, what's up? you know, what's up with that? But, but, <laughs> but you couldn't say that to an insurance salesman. But in our business, we build in racism all the time. Or we are the ones who make the problem that we're seeing in society, which is, which is kind of, and that's how come I think for all of us, educators, makers, um, institutions, boards, that's the reason why theater makers and film constructors, I say, we are the ones who have to lead this thing. We, I mean, it's not just, yeah. Yeah, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, it's not just, yes, children for sure, and mentoring mm -hmm. for sure, but also communities that are systems impacted who don't have access to the theater, they think it's not for them. And yes. for me, it was super moving last year and the year before in Griffith Park with Indie Shakes, when um, we were able to bring people there who are technically still incarcerated or in what's called a halfway house in the last year of their sentence, who had never, ever, ever even thought mm. to step inside a theater. Like, that's for, you know, rich white people. <laughs> and, you know, obviously because they've been incarcerated, they're mostly communities of color, those places. And so we were able to, when we're inside, we've been holding the space, I guess, and building the stage for them to play. And then they came back and they helped to build the stage for mm. us to play, which was very moving mm. for me. Like, mm. wow. then they came and watched the show, Shakespeare, right? And they were they were like, oh, I understood every single word. And that person there is like this person in my life. And this character reminded me of this. The very rich experience that they had coming to watch Shakespeare plays. And afterwards, talking to them and hearing them say, you know what, I think I'm going to go to the theatre down the road for me. I've never thought about going there. Or why can't I go to that theatre that's downtown, that posh place? I should mm -hmm. go there, except it's like, $75 to go. But you know, I feel like this is like super, super important if we want people in America to understand the power of the arts. It has to be accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. yes. we, don't think yeah, yeah. Of them. we don't think of them. But they're yeah. the people who will support the arts. And my people are the ones who make the argument in the Senate, in the city, you know, during the Obama administration. They're the ones who make the argument to fund the arts because they're like, we're not artists, but we transformed our lives through the theater. Yeah.
Yeah. And it has to happen. It has to happen in in the community as well. Like there is there is taking like putting people on a bus and bringing them to the space, yeah. but it also has to happen down the street. Yeah. You know, like kids being able to walk to the theater in their neighborhood makes it a part of their lives early on, and not just kids, adults too. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like there's this, and I and it's been it's been really uh, it's been a really um, wild experience over the past the past the past couple of years realizing how uh, just how the white lens was built into your training, mm -hmm. built into my training at least, or, or even like the way we the way we assess theater and like the way that uh, we can make we, like we make decisions on what what is theater with it what what, it, what is capital T theater and like like it's not just about like even right right even though right now right now there's you know the big question of like what is what is theater if we're not like in a space live in, in person but it was like yeah but the question is we should have been asking we've been asking that question like what what defines it because if you pop up if you pop up theater like on the street uh at an in a, in a neighborhood um and you're talking about what that neighborhood has been through uh and it's right there in front of the people are are, are, are right there and and it's and it's done by the people that are in that neighborhood as well like these are things that are like really transformative and uh makes you a part of the process and even just being around so that somebody sees Somebody sees us doing that work, and that's why that's why that's why we need we need more of us uh, uh, um, in the in the in the the, the, the schools because schools have no idea what to do with you um, as a person of color. Uh, most, most of the time, your teacher is not going to look like you, um, uh, and we already know we already know how how much uh, how much more of a chance you have to to retain the information and get and and uh, and, and have a, a a fruitful experience in education if your teacher looks like you that's not just in grade school it's an acting school as well uh, you know it's in it's it's in it's in it's in, it's in all the arts like just being able to see us doing the work um makes it possible for more of us to do it you know um and uh that's why as part part of our part of our mentorship uh one part of it is just showing up but also like i'm personally i'm more excited about about mentoring now that I've realized how much uh, white supremacy was was built into the training and the lens that I see art that I, that I see art through, so that I can start doing that work to take to, to to throw away what the rule book is, you know, throwing away all these ideas of what it has to be and who gets to do it, yes. you know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know what? You know what? And this is history, which always trips me out when you talk about the rule book getting tossed. You know, the African Grove, this is a story, they did Richard III was the most popular play. And one of the reasons why they closed was the Park Theater, a rival theater, had them arrested. All of the black actors, all of the sable actors were arrested. And they were only released when they promised never to do Shakespeare again, which wow. totally trips me out. Well, I was like, what? But the other what? thing, there are two other aspects of the African Grove that tripped me out. One is they paid all their actors in 1821, which I'm like, Hmm, that's interesting. And the other thing, and this goes um, to a point, Saber, that you were making, is that they had a mixed race, mixed ethnic, mixed economic audience. Enslaved persons paid money to come to see shows. So you had enslaved people who were chimney sweeps and owned by people who came to see the shows next to free people. And it just kind of trips me out thinking about what that audience was watching Richard III, why was Richard III the most popular play? And I just, and, and the other piece of it is that the rivalry with the Park Theater is one of the reasons why they had to shut down because they, you had these sable actors as they were called in the, in the newspaper 
um, were arrested and they were, and the, the key was they were only released when they promised never to do Shakespeare again. Of course they did, but, but I just think that's interesting to think about like, that's their point of release. The fact that they were doing this um, subversive form, you know, I'm like, wow, that's kind of like compelling. But I think we just have to be across our ethnic, economic lenses, our ethnic lenses. We've just got to be bringing people in as, as often as we can to see the work and just let them know that it's possible for them. That's it. Yeah. I'm super threatened by theater. You know, like, first of all, in Shakespeare's time, they had uh, several black actors right. in London at that time and black aristocracy, which you never hear about. Mm. And they had African yeah. actors coming to London and it was like the thing, you know, it was like the royalty thought it was like the thing, the hip thing. And then Commedia dell'arte, which is a lot of the training that I've had in Italy, around the beginning, Shakespeare used a lot of commedia characters in his plays, but in like the 16th century, those actors were not like the actors from today. They were social justice activists and they would, you know, bring their little car in the village at twilight and satirize the upper classes and they would get arrested for it all the time, even though they were just like doing comedy, but you know, it was satire very clever comedy <laughs> in the audience the villagers would be like you know revolutionaries after watching theater and so those comedian players would regularly get arrested and sometimes they executed them for yeah. doing theater yeah. this was super dangerous yeah. and i feel like now we've corporatized it we've you know used the theater is not doesn't come from white supremacy no. from the people but you know the greeks and you know we have made it i, I know that's bruce's train you know we've corporatized it and if you look at you know broadway or even like the big local theaters like the mark taper form all those places are corporatized but there is this whole other part of theater that we need to center at this time yeah radical it's revolutionary and th this is the you know rather than doing theater light trying to be as much like we can as it has been even if it's on this you know why don't we look at those people and why don't we think oh you know they were revolutionaries we're in a time of revolution why don't we make this dangerous yeah and i think one thing that we do need to talk about especially is we'll see a lot of these productions and plays that are essentially like black trauma porn yes and it's put on for predominantly white audiences i was in a production with hero theater company last it seems like a million years ago but it was in like october and it was a retelling of Troy and it was focusing on the homeless and displaced community in Los Angeles. And Hero Theater made a point on their own dime to bus in women from the downtown women's center and they came and they were able to see it. And it was so incredibly moving, like just hearing their reactions during the show because they knew it, that was their story. Yeah. They were getting to see their story and their truth. And they would come up to us after the fact and be like, ooh, when I was younger, I was you. Like that was me or ooh, you remind me of my daughter, you're bad. Like, and they had so much fun. So it shouldn't be, people should be able to see their own stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how powerful that is. Our stories for white people. Yeah, I mean, I remember, 
once being in prison when we first started doing the program inside prison. And I remember this, a staff member coming to me and saying, I don't like what you're doing. And I was like, well, what am I doing? We're just doing a theater class. No one's doing anything bad. And they were like, yes, it's not good that you're giving them the, she called them inmates. I don't call them inmates. You're giving the inmates too much power. And I was like, oh, interesting. How are we giving them too much power? Don't they, like, they have less infractions. Their infractions have dropped by nearly 90% from doing the class. So what do you mean we're giving them too much power by teaching a theater class? And she said, they talk back now. They have an attitude or they talk back to me now, or they, they seem to like, they're more friendly with the gang who they're, you know, usually is their enemy. Now those people are like brothers and now they kind and of- that's a problem? That's a bad thing. <laughs> bad thing because wow. it's system, it's systemic racism. Yeah. They need to know their place and theater is like waking it gives up. you a voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Theater as a uniter, you know, like, it, it, oh, you bringing people together. Yeah, you better stop it's, that. It's, it's difficult to control when people are together. That is the issue right there, bringing people together and then realizing their power. And it's the same in juvie. You know, these kids who we do a civic engagement, the uh, arts program in juvie for them to get them to vote, 86% of the people we worked with voted in the primary election through doing an arts-based workshop. We don't realize as artists the power of the arts, the power of what we have. We underestimate it, especially when we get in the Hollywood mind frame and we're like, you know, I, I, I'm five pounds too heavy or you yeah. know, I'm over 40 now or, you know, I'm too light or I'm too dark. All of that shit is like negates the power of what we have. Yeah. 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 So really quick, I know we're running over time a little bit, but this is such a good conversation. So our last question, this will be our last question before we open it up to questions. So if you are watching, I'm looking, I'm reading all of your comments in the chat. You all are awesome. If you have a question, put it in the chat. This will be our last one before that. So um, really quick, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but let's talk about Black theater specifically. So black theater, theater that is for us, theater that is by us. Why is it important that we nurture black theater specifically? Um, I can talk to that just a little bit. I'll be really, really fast. Um, I just think that, you know, we, like I, we did talk about this a little bit. I think autonomy is of the utmost. I'll just, I think it bears repeating. Um, but even in, in founding and, and, uh, creating this organization, Support Black Theater, which launches this fall in Los Angeles. Um, it's, it's something where I've had to, you know, there, because it is a very specific title to the, um, the organization, um, there has been some question around whether this is kind of exclusive. And I just would like to say that it's it's not about exclusion. To support Black theater is not about exclusion. It's a statement of intention and it's a statement of focus. Because mm -hmm. I believe that if we as Black artists, Barbara Antier, actually the founder of the National Black Theater, she said, it is crucial for us to have a Black cultural art form. It is even more crucial than the issue of white racism itself for us to build as black artists, for us to build and to support black theaters in our community. It is so crucial. And 
I don't, I, I'll say again, it is just about focus. It's not about exclusion. And if we don't champion and rally around, particular, particularly in this time of the pandemic, when we have seen just on a much broader stage, how um, systemic racism just affects all kinds of aspects. I mean, COVID has brought about just the, the, the racial disparity between, you know, in, in terms of the effects of COVID-19 because mm. of systemic mm -hmm. racism. I mean, you just can't deny this is a time, I believe, for self-prioritization for Black people because mm -hmm. you cannot expect anyone else to do it. And so it's not a matter of saying, oh, it's about us, not them. It's not that. It's just a matter of making sure that we focus on what does it mean to support one another as Black people? What does it mean to tangibly create a new system? Because this old system did not have us in mind. So mm -hmm. as, as we all know, there is such value in reform, in the course correct that's happening. There's value there, but I don't want us to lose sight of how valuable it can also be to create to create new systems, to create new paths, to create new lanes with us in mind. Because at the end of the day, if somebody is asking me to come into their home and to help them remodel, to, to use my paint, mm. my hammer, my nail, yeah. my drywall, in fixing up and patching up a home that I was never in mind, uh, I, I was only going to ever be allowed to rent and never own, I think I have to ask myself the question, what would it look like for me to have equity in a home, for me to have true ownership of a home? I'm going to take my labor and my materials there. Mm -hmm. for, not that we don't support your renovations because we support it mm -hmm. <laughs> right now. If I'm building a home with my materials, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I'll have ownership there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, just like, like yeah, it doesn't mean other lives don't matter. It's the same thing. Yeah. No, no, but I think I think I think a crucial thing is, and I hate to use this word culture because it gets beat up, but African American, I'm sorry, let me be clear. Black theater is unique culturally. So I, I and I say this aesthetically. One of the things that we have, and this is like just looking at this stuff for the last 200 years of the stuff we've making, we as a people do not construct protagonist and antagonist dialectics. We don't do that. When you look at Raising in the Sun, for example, which is classic African-American play, there is no antagonist in the play. Mama's not an antagonist. Walt, you might say that Walter is arguing with himself and does money make him a man. Another classic is Ntozaki Shange's For Colored Girls. When I'm looking at Adrian Kennedy's Funny House, when I'm looking at all of the work that Black people construct in America, yeah. the protagonist-antagonist dialectic goes away. So what ends up happening is we make different cultural products. And I think one of the things which is really hard is when we are talking about, I mean, and I hate to make it as simple as the food metaphor, but that's the one I always use, either food or music. Funk music, rhythm and blues is what it is. French cuisine is French cuisine. It is different than Italian cuisine. And if I make French cuisine, I am not making pure French cuisine. I'm making New Jersey-based, Jamaican-parented French cuisine. It can be delicious, but it ain't a pure French thing. You see what I'm saying? And yes. so that's my thing with the Black theater. I'm always saying we need to make, and when I was at Penumbra, I was always trying to ring this bell about making Hitsville, USA, 
making it a place where we make the work that is uniquely ours. Make mm-hmm. Hitsville was the Motown basement where uh, Barry Gordy started Motown. Um, when I'm thinking about the ways in which we make things different, but for me, the, a significant aesthetic thing is the fact that we don't do that protagonist antagonist thing. I don't know if that's because of the cultural life that we've had since 1619 on this soil, or if it's just the way in which we d- decide to, to make our stuff. And, and when I look at all of these old plays, like from the twenties and, and um, Purple Flower by Marita Bonner, it's, th- that's the thing that's missing. And I was like, oh, because we don't do that to each other. That's not how our spirit operates. We operate in a different way. And so we should keep finding what those aesthetics are. And we use our training and, and use it in, the, in that aesthetic space but it's very different than a lot of the other kind of Western ways of making work. That was just, I just always got to say that. Yeah. Yes. Mm. All right. So we're going to move on to our questions we have. So this is our first question. I'm going to show it for everybody to see. So the question from Brandon Hay is, what are y'all's thoughts on the word training now and how it's used towards black artists by white leadership in negative tones? Any thoughts? Um, there are a couple, I mean, there are a couple of things which I think it's, it's you know, <laughs> there are a couple of things about training. Like if you're talking about developing a craft set and you make that a synonym for training. I mean, I think what ends up happening is that what we have when we enter theater is we have human beings who are in space moving through time. And the, the actor or the performer, I should say, um, is in trying to engage the body, the mind, the spirit, and to manifest typically a character. So there's a craft set that one has, which starts with breathing and being able to control one's body, but there's a series of things that, that, you, that you have. So there's a craft set which happens. I think it's interesting to use the word training. It's, the, it's a simple um, but different idea where somebody says, oh, at UCLA, you give a master's degree. Like, what does master's mean? You know, and does it mean master and an unmasked? Like, what is the relationship of that, even that language? Um, right. I, I guess you could change the language around it. But I think to be a performer, to be a writer, a director, a designer, uh, uh, an executive in any way in, around the theater, you need to gain a knowledge of history you need to have the practice that's available and you need to understand the theory behind that. So those three pillars are where I go always. And I don't know if that's training or if that's craft construction. I don't know what the, the, the right language is, but I do think that that's what we all need. And then when we take it, like, um, you know, when we take it, whether it's um, learning how to play the piano, we can become Duke Ellington or Nina Simone but we take the craft construction and we can manifest it the way we choose to. So I don't know, maybe that's a. Well, I mean, training, training could be all that. Training training could be in a, in a formal program, but it could also be just in years of work experience, you know, right? Uh, like you, experience true. you got from your mentor. Like that is, that is training. Uh, and it always should be. And if it's being used in, if, 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 uh, if your training is in question because it didn't come to one of these, one of these, if you, cause you weren't christened by one of these white institutions, yeah. um, uh, like I was, you know, like I know it's a part of it. Uh, like if if uh, if someone wants to question whether your training is valid because it didn't come from that, well, shit, I want to question your anti-racism training too. Where'd that come from? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You get a and that's the thing too. Like, first of all, hey, Brandon. But yeah, that that whole there's a whole bunch of buzzwords. You know, sometimes we use training. Sometimes we'll say, oh, it's a bit raw. 
<laughs> yes. Or, right, right. We know what that means. Or, oh, yeah, really nice, but just, you know, a bit green, a bit green, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like we know what they're saying. And I will just say from someone who was trained in one of those white institutions, I'm doing my damnedest to undo all the training mm -hmm. that I got. That's what I'm working on now. So I don't necessarily, you, you know, uh, the, the word is what you make of it, but I don't necessarily, um, I will not agree with anyone who strictly uses that to, um, you know, in the affirmative of like, oh, can, you know, did you come from Juilliard or NYU or whatever? And if so, then you have less value. That's, I call BS on that. Yeah. I think um, right now I'm working with Steppenwolf and we are doing like a, I guess like a training course, like a course for people. And Steppenwolf is super white. But the great thing is they have realized that and have really slowed down to try to understand how to change it. And they've delayed the course because what they they realized that, you know, oh, shoot, I, I think I was the only teacher of color, maybe two of us. But, you know, they were like, no, we can't go forward at this time like this. What do we have to do? And so we've had these really interesting meetings about training. And one of them was... <clears throat> Well, there is the basic training that everyone has to do, you know, voice and physicality, like you're saying. And, you know, this is how we do it. It's like, you know, when you learn how to read a play, there's a beat in a play, there's characters, there's a protagonist. But, you know, the great thing about this discussion was there was an indigenous woman there who was like, we don't approach theatre in that way. We don't approach theatre, the training in the same way as you do. Our training is, connect, is connected to Mother Earth, you know, like how the theatre in the world is through our relationship with our environment. And so for me, it really was super exciting to be like, oh, now we have an, a Native American woman who's going to be on the faculty of this, who sees a completely different approach to theatre, but would never have been in a position of power at Steppenwolf in the past to be able to, yes. we could receive that beautiful, you know, thing. And I'm a, I went to a school for the arts in England. I was the only person of color in the entire school. And, uh, I was an actor and a dancer and I was the only person of color. And so I did all that training and the damage it did, like Safina's saying, you know, as a ballet dancer, which I was at that time, you know, for them to say to me, oh, it's going to be, you know, oh, you are one of the two or three best dancers here and you're going to have a really hard time getting work as a ballet yeah. dancer because mm -hmm. their bodies don't look like your body. Mm -hmm. So you either, you have to diet and you have to get rid of like, your boobs have to go, even though I was like a stick, you know, it, because of what they think ballet was like. Mm -hmm. Same with Shakespeare, right? I'm the extraordinary person who's allowed to play leads in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But that is because of the training. And so to have the opportunity I mean, I'm really impressed by Steppenwolf. They didn't have to do that. They're one of the most successful companies in the world. They did not have to slow down and try and really understand the damage of only white training. And the great thing is they were like, well, we'll have all the people of color, black indigenous people of color in the front and the white people will be supporting. And I said, actually, I would really like it if you partnered with me, if we co-taught. But if we're really honest, 
during the co-teaching as modeling for the students that, you know, we can talk as we're going about, you know, that comes from white supremacy or, you know, how else could we approach this situation as a white teacher and as a person of color teaching together, mm. which I think would be great for students and yeah. scary as hell, you know? Yeah, yeah. that sounds great. <laughs> great. All right, so let me move on to another question. I think we have time for maybe one more or two more. Um, so this is from Henry. Henry. Hey, Henry. Um, what are some alternatives to Chekhov and Meisner that are created by Black or BIPOC artists? Is, is this a question about Meisner training and, or are they talking about Check off the plan. I mean, Barbara yeah. Antier has a training, although she passed away. She had a, she had a mechanism of training that was unique um, to her and to the National Black Theater. And I will say there are so many, in terms of the Chekhov space, so many writers, mostly women, I must say, of the early 20th century um, that are fantastic, which most people don't approach. There's a woman named Angelina Weld Grimke who wrote Rachel in 1916. And it reminds people of um, a doll's house in some way where you have this young woman who comes to a realization. Um, but it's a brilliant, beautiful play written in 1916. I mean, there's so many writers. Ivor Aldridge's play, The Black Doctor, which is 1847. Victor Sejour's play, The Brown Overcoat, is 1850. I mean, there's a, I mean, you have to go and find these works. And, and Black Theater USA is this book that's out of print now. Yeah. There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of plays that are available. And I tell people all the time. Um, yes, Bruce. Yeah. What, what, oh, you got it. It's, sitting, it's right here. <laughs> I'm like, that's so cool. It's in my office. No, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many, you know, you have to find them, but you, but there's a lot of work that's out there, and then, and it's underappreciated in so many ways. And then Meisner technique that's a that's a whole much longer conversation. Yeah, think. he says he meant the training specifically. Oh, um, so he was a, meaning Michael Chekhov. Michael Chekhov. Okay. I don't. You know, I don't, I tell you, I tell you what though. Like my first year uh, 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 teacher in drama school, uh, Barbara Poitier scared the shit out of me because. Uh, she looked when she was she she was an older black woman who like got my ass in line like day one like and she received all that training I think uh, uh, she did all the um, like method training and 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 all that but like it, I think it feels it, it's a different experience depending on who's teaching on who that training is coming through yeah. you know who these who these methods are coming through to teach you is it I think it's a, I think it's a totally different experience like coming yeah. getting it, getting it from a black woman like totally. Like, made me want to made me one want to do the work, uh, and she wasn't willing to pull no punches because she knew what I was up against, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think yeah, it. I don't know if there, there's got to be some there's got to be some other techniques out there, but like, honestly, like I think I think it really just matters who you're getting it from. Yeah, and also to not forget that in Russia at that time, Pushkin was around, and Pushkin mm -hmm. was black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I feel like they. They, my mother is Russian Romanian Jew, you know, so I've spent time in Russia and yes, it, you know, there's not that many black people, but there is, you know, they, you know, the theater is centered in Russia, right? It's, they have three performances a day, 11, 12 and eight. 
every single one is sold out every single day, even on the weekdays. So I think that, you know, the, the importance of theater, and I've had all of that training, right? I've had method, I've had, I mean, you name it, I've had that training. And, you know, because it's hard to find a specific one that exists across the world that's as famous as those ones because people have been doing it. I've taken all those threads and, you know, sieved it through my life. And I teach at UCLA and USC and, you know, I teach people threads of all of this in some new soup, <laughs> you know, that's been created through my unique experience working in prison. They've taught me everything I know and myself as an actor understanding what theater does to me. And so I, I do think that, you know, we don't have to go necessarily back to the beginning again, but, you know, working with an indigenous teacher plus all of this other stuff to make a new approach, I think is mm -hmm. entirely, why, why not do it? And then to also, you know, like you are saying at the beginning is that, you know, there's many, many centuries of people mm -hmm. doing this work mm -hmm. and also understanding that we have to, at this moment, work for a time that we will never see. What we're doing right now, we will probably not see the full expression yep. of in our lifetimes. Yes. But that is social justice. You can yeah. your life to working for people that you will never meet and they will never, ever know your name. That's yeah. what improvement is. No, that's real. I mean, I, I, I think, and I've said this to a lot of actors, I don't think that the problem is that check over Meisner training. I think that the problem that actors have is that they make the mistake of not bringing the rest of themselves into the yeah, room. Exactly. Their immigrant past, their, where they grew up, bring all of you into the room. Don't. And I think that's where we mess ourselves up with the training because we get told that this training means that I got to cut off yeah. growing up in New Jersey, having Jamaican parents. Like I got to, you got to bring all of that in with you. And it adds, like you say, makes a new soup, makes a new whatever. And then, um, yeah, and then we just keep going forward. And Henry's yeah. doing that already. Henry knows the answer to this because he's doing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. yeah, Henry, you already know the answer. <laughs> okay, the last question I'll ask, I know, Robert, you said it was actually rhetorical, but I'm going to put it up anyway because I think it's interesting and we can touch on it quickly, even though it's a big question. Why save institutions and systems that continue to fail us? No, don't say it. <laughs> don't say it. Some people are going to fold because they can't get around racism. They can't get around having to do that work. They can't get around trying to figure it out and they're going to fold. And I'm goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> Straight up. If you can't do the work, why are you here? Yeah. You can't yeah, I mean, around yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think this is actually a great question. I tell people all the time and it's and I, I shouldn't say this. I've ruined my career a hundred times. I don't care about institutions. I care about art making. I mean, I, I, I was commissioned by Steppenwolf in 1995 to write a play for the only black actor at the time, K. Todd Freeman, who is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant actor. And he was substitute teaching in Chicago. I mean, one of the best actors I've ever come across. And he was the only black company member. I've, I've shot myself in the foot a million times, but I think that what we shouldn't do is embrace the institution or the system. We should embrace the art making. And so the art making is trying to find truth. Truth is subjective, it's everybody's thing. But I think the thing about trying to find truth is, you're not trying to find truth and explain it to white people. You're trying to find truth for self. You ain't trying to, I mean, and this is the thing, when I listen to Cecil Taylor or Grace Jones or Prince, 
You know, I, I'm like truth is the thing that's inside their work. When I'm looking at a Basquiat painting or when I'm engaged with a, 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 a Augusta Savage piece of sculpture, it's truth. It is, and it's something else. And so I don't. I, it, maybe the institution should go away. You know, um, 50 years ago, we didn't have most of these institutions. The taper is only 50 years, well, 60, whatever it is. But it's not that old. None of these institutions are that old. So if they go away, they go away. But the art is going to stay. And that's where I'm always like, the, the art is what I, what I always push people towards. Make the art. You know, be Grace Jones. Don't try to be, you know, uh, an artistic director of some theater. Be somebody who you can't, you can't that categorize. Be somebody who's, who's once in a lifetime. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, we also have to be careful with abolishment. I'm like, I work in prisons, so I sure as hell don't want, I want prisons to go away forever. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there are people who are incarcerated in those prisons who, you know, I've had people say to me, you shouldn't be working in there because it's, you know, the worst, most racist, white supremacist place on the planet, which is true. But meanwhile, there are people in there. There are people. Yes who, you know, have said to me, I needed to have time away from society to sort my shit out, you know? And so how how can we both abolish and reform at the same time? And for me, the only way it's going to happen in America, and I say this as an immigrant and as a citizen, we have to do a truth and reconciliation process in this country because you can't just move forward without accepting the truth. And we have not accepted the truth yet in this country there's an unaccounted yeah. for indigenous genocide and slavery that we mm -hmm. have to slow down and admit happened and then then we can find new ways forward otherwise donald trump is inevitable because we're yoked to you know 400 years ago because we've never yes. failed yes i think that this is what artists have to do at this moment we, like you were saying, Dominic, we and we have ways to understand the truth. We don't automatically understand the truth, but we have ways, tools to understand the truth. And I've learned from COVID that, oh my God, I process the world through acting. I didn't realize that until I, I was like, oh, nothing's moving through me. It's all just getting stuck in me, you know, like constipation and it's like I feel shit I feel shit all the time this is super unsatisfying the zoom thing I process the world <laughs> and so to make change I have to be acting I have to process the world and I yes. think that's what theater can do yeah. all right well oh, on that note I'm just going to share a few quick things um for everyone before we leave. So we had our um, t-shirt drawing and our winner for an Shake Summer Festival t-shirt this time is Hannah Hayes. You'll be hearing from us next week. Also, please join us next week as Carolina Zique will have her festival event titled Making the Magic of the Festival, Stories from Backstage. That'll be a week from today, August 29th, at the same time, same place, 7 p.m. live stream. So Carolina, who is the producer of the ISC Art Break podcast, is going to dig into what makes the festival tick, and she's going to uncover backstage stories and explore what it takes to bring Shakespeare's plays to the LA community. Also, 
As many of you know, we have had to delay our hybrid production of Romeo and Juliet ever so slightly. And again, this is not related to any health or safety issues. We just wanna bring you all the best experience possible. So the new live stream dates will be September 17th through the 20th, and the production will be available on demand that following week from September 21st to September 27th. And lastly, again, we couldn't make any of this happen without your support. So if you would like to donate to our Imagining Tomorrow Give Lively page, you can really easily text ISCLA to 44321, or you can also go onto the ISCLA website to look at all of that as well. And you can also learn how you can become a roustabout, which, ooh, that sounds fun, and support <laughs> ISC and, uh, continually as a roustabout. So there's a lot of information on our website. Thank you again to all of these amazing, incredible panelists, uh, virtual guests. Thank you everyone for watching, everyone who stayed. I know we went over by like 15 minutes, so thank you so much and have a great rest of your Saturday evening. Thank you. Bye. Continue to check out resources to help the Black Lives Matter movement and take a look at how ISC reimagines how we produce BIPOC theater at iscla.org justice. Rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it for now. As always, stay socially distant, not emotionally. <laughs>